0: Both of them have been shown something of the truth, and yet in their hardness of heart and in their desire to unbelieve, they resist the truth. That's what Jesus is getting at. about the first feeding, and now we come to the second episode of chapter 8, which is the Pharisees, at the conclusion of this, again, both feedings, at the conclusion, the Pharisees show up and they are not happy. And so here, beginning from verse 11, the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him. Some translations say they began to question him or discuss with him. Those words are far too weak. In fact, argue is not strong enough. The word that Mark uses here literally means harass or heckle. So these Pharisees come and they are literally heckling Jesus. So I know we have this mental picture in our minds of what all these scenes look like as they played out. And one of the pictures that we have is this picture of Jesus and his, maybe his disciples are behind him. And there's these Pharisees and they're sort of having this face to face that's not what's happening here. In this occasion, Jesus is being heckled. Like uh, King David, as they, as they were ousting him from Jerusalem. Who was the guy's name? They was heckling David. Where, where's all your mighty strength now, David? Where's all your mighty people that follow you now, David? Where are you now, David? That's just what this is like. Show us a sign, Jesus. Show us one of your signs. Come on, do something spectacular for us, Jesus. They are heckling him and As they were heckling him, they're heckling him over this seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Come on, Jesus, show us a sign, you big, powerful miracle worker you. Uh, Heal this person, cast this demon out, show us this sign. Which makes us want to say, how many signs do you need to see? How many signs are you going to need to see? Jesus has shown sign after sign after sign from chapter 1. Show us a sign from heaven to test. And they're they're trying to test him. That word there is also translated tempt. Chapter one, Jesus went to the wilderness to be tempted. So they're tempting Jesus, verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. Mark is never embarrassed to show us Jesus's emotional reactions. He's never embarrassed by that. He's never shy about showing us the full humanity of Jesus as Jesus sighs deeply Deeply in his spirit. Come on, you big old mighty Jesus, you're the old Messiah, show us something. Oh, these people again. These people again. So he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So show us a sign, Jesus, no sign. I'm not doing any tricks for you. So they ask for a sign. Jesus denies them this sign. So let's just remind ourselves that asking for a sign, seeking a sign, is not portrayed in Scripture as something that's necessarily sinful. We see many times that there are signs asked for, signs are given. In your notes there, there's an example in Isaiah where God Himself says, ask of me a sign. And God says that a number of times. Ask of me a sign, I'll show you a sign. And there's a number of asking of signs in the Old Testament. Not all of those are sinful. Some of those are quite questionable. Some of those are sinful, like Gideon with the fleece and everything. But many of them are not. And in fact, Jesus himself would show signs. Jesus himself would show signs even when he wasn't asked. You remember the paralytic? As the paralytic was lowered down and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then knowing what everybody's thinking, who, who are you to forgive sins? Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll show you a sign. What if I were to tell him to get up and walk? Would that be a good sign? So he turns to the man, stand up and walk. See, So Jesus himself will often offer a sign. So the asking of a sign is not necessarily sinful. But any good teacher knows, any parent knows, don't you? You know the difference between a genuine question and a challenge, don't you? You know the difference between being having your, your authority challenged and being asked a genuine question. You know the difference between someone who is trying to assert that they're really the smart one and they're going to show you the smart one through their snobby questions and someone who's coming with a genuine question. So certainly the master whom John's gospel tells us he knew the hearts of men. Nobody needs to tell him the hearts of men. He knows the hearts of men. He knows that the heart of this question is not coming from a desire to know and have a question answered, that this question is really a challenge. This question is really a smack against his authority, against his own teaching, against his his position. And so to this, Jesus says, no signs going to be given. I am not here to do signs for scoffers which by the way, we should take notice here of how Jesus treats scoffers. The next verse is, He left them. And the word Mark uses there could also be translated, He abandoned them. He turned His heel and left. Turning His back to them, He said, I'm done with you. This is the equivalent of what Jesus Himself told His disciples to do. When they reject your message, Knock out the dust of your sandals against them as a demonstration to show them you are outside the parameters of the people of God. Jesus himself does the same thing. He just leaves them. This is how Jesus treats scoffers. Jesus spends great amount of time talking with all kinds of people, answering questions. But when they come to Jesus with a scoffer-type attitude, Jesus' response is, I'm, I'm done. I'm not showing you anything, I'm leaving. So they're asking for the sign. No sign's going to be given. They come to Jesus with this hard heart, with this, remember how the Pharisees, remember how we've said how they are the the picture of the sin in chapter 3 that we called enlightened blasphemy. Remember that? Enlightened blasphemy means, it's sometimes called the unpardonable sin in that passage, but what that means is, In the face of illumination from God, your hard heart says, I won't yield. In the face of God's enlightening work to somehow, through the work of His Spirit, somehow show this man really is God, the Scriptures really are true. In the face of that, the hard heart that says, I still will not yield to that. That's the sin of enlightened blasphemy. That's the sin of having been shown something of the truth and yet not yielding to it. And so they come to Jesus. They've seen sign after sign after sign after sign. And yet they come to Jesus, show us a sign. He's not going to show us a sign. Because they come to him from a heart that's not ready to stop asking questions and believe. They come to him from, from a heart that's seeking how to embarrass him. Seeking how to put him in his place. Seeking how to show all the other people watching and listening, this man really can't be listened to. You know, it's been said, I I didn't coin this phrase. I wish I did, but it's too clever for me. It's been said that if you come to the Scriptures with a big brain, you will find the Scriptures completely sufficient for you. But if you come to the Scriptures with a big head, you will find the Scriptures completely insufficient. You get that? If you come to the Scriptures with a big brain and ask the Scriptures to answer all your intellectual questions and to satisfy your curiosity, they won't answer every question you have because the Scriptures are about an infinite God. We will never have all of our questions answered. But if we come to the Scriptures with a big brain we will find them sufficient for everything we ask. But if we come to the Scriptures with the big head, we will find them wholly and entirely insufficient, incapable, in, unable to sustain any sort of belief because we came to them with the big head. There's a lot to be said there. These Pharisees are coming to Jesus not with questions that they sincerely want answered. They're coming to Jesus with a big head. They're coming to Jesus with a great big opinion of themselves. They're coming to Jesus with a closed heart. Even though they've been shown something of the truth, they're unwilling to believe and unwilling to submit to any of it. And Jesus says to them, I'm leaving, I'm done. So he left them, got into the boat, and went off to the other side. Now the next episode is the episode of the teaching that takes place in the boat. So now once again they find themselves in the boat, and then following the first feeding, there's the episode in the boat in which there's this misunderstanding that's brought to light. Same thing here for, for this boat journey. In fact, there's been three boat journeys in Mark in Mark in which the, the under or the lack of understanding of the disciples is brought to the front. Three boat journeys. The first was the storm, the second was the second storm, and now this is the third one in which the boat journey is the occasion for bringing to light their lack of understanding. So they're having this conversation about with each other, they're saying, which we've, you know, we forgot bread. Which tells us probably some time has passed. There were seven large baskets of bread just previously. We don't know what happened to that. Maybe they gave a bunch of it away. But whatever the case is, there's now no bread, which reminds us, Mark is almost certainly not arranging these stories chronologically. He's almost certainly arranging these thematically to teach us a a theme, a point. So in this occasion, they have no bread. They're talking to each other. You can just kind of hear them. You see them sort of whispering to each other. You know, Jesus may be in the back of the boat and he's watching the disciples up there in the front of the boat and they're whispering to each other, you know, I thought you were bringing bread. You were supposed to bring it this time. We don't have any bread. And we're starting out over the water. We we don't don't have any bread. And so then Jesus interrupts their little conversation, which by the way, don't you hate when people have a whispering conversation in front of you? So Jesus interrupts their little whispering conversation to say, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, which is like this out of the blue, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herod. And so he interrupts their conversation with this teaching about beware of the leaven. Now, before we continue, let's just make sure we understand Jesus' analogy of leaven. Some of you might have a translation that says yeast. You might have a translation that says yeast, I think NIV. All right. So if your translation says yeast, uh, it's wrong because the word does not mean yeast. In fact, there is a crucial difference between yeast and leaven that, if you understand the difference, destroys the analogy. Yeast and leaven are not the same thing. So yeast is what's used today as a bread rising agent, as a dough rising agent. And it works completely differently from leaven. Yeast is something that you put in your bread and then, you know, it makes it rise and everything. And if you mess it up, what's the worst thing that happens if you mess up your, your, your uh, yeast? Somebody tell me. It might not rise, or it might be like the I Love Lucy thing, where the you know the bread is pushing the door, the oven door open, and coming out into the kitchen. Is that why I love I love Lucy? Yeah. So it it might be that you got this overabundance of rising, or it might not rise at all. That's the worst thing that can happen with yeast. Leaven is not like yeast. Leaven is simply cutting off a small portion of the dough batch that has already risen, cutting off a small portion, setting it aside. And supposedly a cool place, which in the ancient world was pretty hard, but setting it aside in a cool place. And when you're ready for the next batch, that small amount of old dough is then given some juices, usually fruit juices with sugar in it, to then reignite the fermentation process. And then that small amount of old dough is put into the new dough to make the new dough rise. Anybody see a problem with that? The possibility for rancid leaven was extremely high. And that was the whole problem with with leaven was that oftentimes it would be sour. It would spoil. uh, Yeast doesn't do that. So oftentimes it would spoil, meaning that the whole new dough was now rancid. You see how that doesn't work with yeast? The the analogy breaks apart when you make it yeast. Leaven is the only thing that works once you understand why leaven was dangerous. Why leaven in the ancient world oftentimes ruined the whole batch of dough? Because it could have gone sour or rancid. Maybe you didn't realize it. And now the whole batch of dough, which was just fine before, is now spoiled. That's the whole point. So whenever we come across leaven in the scriptures, almost always it's used as an analogy of a corrupting influence, a wicked influence, a sinful influence that has the ability, when mixed together with something good, of ruining the whole thing. It's kind of like the the one bad apple sort of thing, only it's a much more powerful analogy. So that's the key to leaven. That's the understanding of leaven is that a small amount of it, you you might not ever know, but a small amount of it could be rancid. It could be sour and ruin the whole new batch. And you don't know until everybody gets sick. And so Jesus says, beware, be warned. You know, we, we have lots of warnings in our world, don't we? I think about, the, you, know, you ever seen a, the Prop 65 warning? It's not the most ridiculous thing in the world. The Prop 65 warning that's basically on every single thing that you ever buy, which is the state of California has determined that this contains something that might cause cancer if you take it and eat it in your food every day for the next 20 years. It might cause, what a ridiculous warning. So we, we hear all these warnings in our world today, and sometimes, sometimes we just grow sort of numb to them. We just grow sort of dull to them because we hear so many warnings. But listen. When the Son of God gives us a warning, that's when we stop in our tracks and we say, What is your warning, Master? We are here to listen. His warning is, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Mark's Got I'm, I'm sorry, in Matthew's gospel and Luke's Gospel, the leaven of the Pharisees is associated with their teaching. So maybe there's something to it there, maybe there's a continuity here. But really, when we think about the Pharisees and Herod, The commonality really is the same thing that we mentioned earlier, enlightened blasphemy. They both have been shown something of the truth. The Pharisees have seen sign after sign after sign. Herod, what about Herod? Remember, he's the one. He said uh, that uh, Jesus must be John the baptizer, come back to life. So he was there. John the baptizer was in prison. He preached to Herod over and over. He saw the signs. He's heard of Jesus's all of Jesus' signs. And in light of all that, he says, huh, maybe this is John, come back to life. So both of them have been shown something of the truth. And yet in their hardness of heart and in their desire to unbelieve, they resist the truth. That's what Jesus is getting at. So Jesus says to them, beware. Beware of the unbelief that springs from a heart that even though you've been shown the truth, nevertheless wants to cling to your unbelief. Beware of that. And Jesus says that comes in the context of what? Worrying about earthly needs. That's what he says. Worrying about earthly needs. They're worrying about bread. We forgot the bread, guys. And in the context of worrying over earthly needs... Jesus says, this is an open door, an open door for unbelief, the unbelief of a little bit of sour leaven, a little bit of rancid leaven to creep into your soul and cause you to stop believing the truth that you have been shown and that you should believe. So Jesus says, beware of that. And so we should take that warning to heart today. Beware. Jesus says it to us in the same way. Beware the leaven of unbelief that will creep into your soul and cause you to just disbelieve just a little bit. Disbelieve just a little bit. You know, the enemy does not need you to disbelieve all of the Scripture. Just a little bit. Just a little bit is okay. Just a little bit of that leaven. Because as Paul says to the Galatians, a little leaven, leavens what? The whole lump. So that's the warning. Beware of this. And so then they respond by saying, what? He must know. How did he know? He knows we don't have bread. He's going to be mad. And then Jesus goes into the same teaching, once again, we've heard this before. If you, do you have eyes? You, you guys have eyes, why don't you see? You have ears, why don't you hear? He who has ears, he can hear. He who has eyes can see. What about the first feeding, guys? What about the second feeding? Do you remember all those things that we took up? Do you remember all of that?